I love you. Thank you. Turn to John 11, and we will get to work. So, from what I understand, y'all are in the middle of a series on the I Am Statements of Christ, and so the text that's been assigned to me, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I think I got the good one, like the easy one. <laughs> I was looking at some of the other I Am Statements and feeling feeling for the brothers that had had those. Uh, a couple weeks ago, y'all talked about the door, and I thought, man... Thank you, Jesus. John 11, I got the resurrection and life. <laughs> that's life. That's Jesus, right? That's it, man. There's no ambiguity about that. So uh, I'm, I'm thankful for a church that uh, that focuses so heavily. There's such an emphasis on the teaching of the Word. And uh, and so it's an honor to, to step in here and, and get to carry that mantle for, for just today. Uh, and it, we do have an incredible partnership with y'all. We, there's been a lot of people through the years. I was trying to think when this partnership started. I believe it was a girl named Carrie Stallings. That, and when this church, how was the church here? Yeah, I think so. She served at Snowbird in like 2003 or four, and and then started attending here. She was in school here at Barry, and she went on served on the mission field with the IMB, and uh, that's how far back the partnership goes. So pretty awesome. Let's study the Bible together. Sound good? We're going to do this. Uh, John chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 1, and uh, this is the word of the Lord. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man... Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there? Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After these, after these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, he has fallen asleep. If he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. Lord, I pray your blessing on the reading and the hearing of your word. I pray that you be exalted. You draw people to yourself. We'd see you more clearly this morning because of your word and its explanation and a deeper understanding of it. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and understand. 
And I pray that we would have the humility to obey your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, uh, this past spring, I had a I had a series of medical tests. I had, I've got a weird heart condition. I've had it since I was a kid. And when I was about uh, 15, uh, I'd go through a bunch of tests. And, um, and they told me, they said, when you get to be an older man, you will have some issues. And I had to come with grips come to grips with the fact that I must be an older man now because I was having it's really hard pill to swallow man I's not happy about this but when what it is is it's it's electrical so my heart it kind of short circuits and 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 charges weird and and I run on a lot of adrenaline and and was running a lot of adrenaline and caffeine and sugar and 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 so I had to end, end up having to go to a cardiologist down in uh in Atlanta in fact I actually went to I had to be rushed to the hospital here in Rome um, one night and that kind of started this cascading effect. And so I ended up at the, at, at Gwinnett cardiology. And I remember just thinking, man, I'm not, what is going on? Am I going to die? You know, I'm thinking, am I going to die? Am I really going to die? And I was freaking out a little bit. I got five kids and my youngest child will be the death of my wife. If I leave now, you know, like, I, so I'm thinking, God, that boy, that four year old boy needs a strong hand in his life and i know you know what you're doing god but i like and i'm not trying to negotiate the terms of my own surrender here but if i can hang around like let's get him out of the house and little would little's faith will be strong she won't be mad at you she won't be mad at me and and so i'm standing outside of church one night and i'm talking to a guy one of the deacons in our church and he says uh he says i tell you it's a pretty sobering thought when you come face to face with your own mortality. And I was like, man, that's so true. Because, you know, for most of the young people in the church, they don't think about this a lot. You're going to live forever, right? The older you get, the faster the clock ticks, the faster that light at the end of the tunnel seems to be approaching. But maybe more significantly, the more funerals you've attended and the more phone calls you've gotten and the more stories have come across uh, your your life of people that have gone to be with the Lord or maybe that went into eternity separated from God. And so there's this reality, this this the, the weight of life and death that's sort of imprinted and burned into every single human being. I think it was Job that 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 questioned what's going to happen after death. Is, is there something beyond this? And you look into like pagan ideology, you go all the way back into like, you know, the Greeks supposedly gave us philosophy and you go back and you study the philosophy of the Greeks and one of the great sort of hovering, looming questions that they had was this question of what happens after man dies? I was driving on the way down here today, I was listening to Al Mohler's briefing from last, I think it was from yesterday or Friday. And he said that uh, he was given a statistic that in the UK... One to between one and two of every professing atheist, which there's a bunch of those over there, uh, it's, it's a very post postmodern culture, and between one and two, between twenty and forty percent of atheists over there that have been in this, and this was like a Pew Research poll that's been done with, with a pretty broad uh, um, net cast, and a lot of people were polled. And, and, and what they're finding is that atheism, though they put their belief in this atheistic system and worldview, it doesn't provide them with comfort. And what it comes down to is the question of what happens after I die. Well, that makes sense that you wouldn't have any comfort in that. I heard one guy say 
well, I don't remember what it, what I was before I came. I was just dirt. And so after I'm gone, I'm not going to know. And so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is we were created and imprinted by an eternal God whose image we bear. Therefore, there's an understanding of that which is eternal. And it's that very understanding that drives our motivation for life, that causes us to ask those questions. Even an unregenerate person who has no relationship with Jesus is saying, what happens after I die? It's because we are created in the image of an eternal God. In his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, missionary Don Richardson talks about different tribes of people who, once the gospel got there, had this storied gospel that went all the way back, sometimes as far back as the time of Abraham. But one of the things that has been found to be true that sociologists will tell us and anthropologists will tell us is that when you study a society, there are basic questions that that society tries to answer within their own traditions and hand down from generation to generation. And at the core and the crux of every one of those societies in history are going to be questions of sexuality, questions of reproduction, questions of relationship and marriage, questions of God, and questions of what happens after death. And for us, it's real easy to kind of hit the cruise control because, hey, we believe in Jesus. He is the resurrection and life. One day we're going to heaven, and that's awesome. And I was deeply convicted recently talking to a Catholic, I believe, brother who said, you know the problem with you Reformed Protestants? And I was like, I mean, I know a few. <laughs> I was like, is it my turn to talk or is this your deal? And he said, you don't take the elements serious. And I was like, dude, if you're going to try to tell me that I got to eat Jesus's flesh and drink his blood every time I do this, like that's, that's, you know, that's what kind of started this whole thing. <laughs> he said, yeah, but he said, when I hold in my hand, the elements and for all the, for all the wrong thinking in that doctrine, the sacred nature with how he looks at that cracker and that little cup of juice was really convicting to me. Because if we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and if we believe that he's the bread of life, and if we believe that he has the authority to give life, then surely it will impact and affect the way we live our lives. 2007 was probably the darkest year of my life, personally. Uh, in 2007, um, my wife was pregnant with our fifth child. We had lost one and was now no we had three and this was our fourth child and she was so three healthy babies and uh and and she was pregnant with our child number four and she lost that child in the same week that my father died suddenly unexpectedly and 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 so it sort of started this for me inner questioning of the the deeper issue of what's going on beyond the grave you know you you think you believe something and you kind of know you believe it and okay well i know that after i die i'm going to be with the lord but it really sort of i started to drill into things like what's heaven really like and what are relationships going to be like and is there going to be a new heaven and a new earth or is this one going to be restored is it going to be like the garden of eden am i really going to know the people that i've known in this life and i know i don't get to be married to little but do we get to hang out you know like is it what's the big idea that it's so great that i'm not going to want because i really like my wife and i was thinking jesus said it's going to be better than that and so i'm kind of thinking so start asking those questions some of you have asked those questions june 2nd of that year my closest friend and mentor at age 36 had a blood clot go into his heart, killed him. He left his family behind. He was a pastor who had really mentored me. And man, it shook me to my core. And seven days later on June 9th, 
four of my staff members were killed in a car wreck. And I remember ages 19, 20, 20, and 21. And I remember having to go to mama's and tell them. Having to, it was such chaos and it was just complete confusion. And it happened down in Atlanta coming out of the city after a Braves game. About 50 of our staff had carpooled down there in a caravan on their day off. And they're coming back and this car wreck happened. And I've got six people in the car and two are intensive care. And they've been flown to four or five different hospitals. And we're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And it was an all-nighter. And I remember at three in the morning talking to one mama and saying, I need you to get your husband on the phone. And i got to tell him something. And having to break the news to that mom and daddy that their little girl wasn't coming home ever again. In that moment, you're going to fall to the level of theology that is perfected in your life. Because you can know a lot academically. And praise God for a church like this that drills and drills and drills theological soundness. And Red Oak Church does the same thing. But in that moment, in that hour, you will fall to the level of, theolog- of, of, of what theology has been perfected in your life. Because if Christ is perfecting us, and if to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength is what true Christianity looks like, then He's perfecting my mind. He's perfecting my life. He's perfecting my thought processes. He's perfecting the way I see Him and the way I see life and the way I see the world and the way I see death and the way I see sin and the way I see hell and the way I see lost people, my neighbors and those at the end of the cul-de-sac and my, my family members that don't know the Lord and the people that I work with every day, the way I view the world, the way I see things like racism and hunger and disease, the way I see the foreign mission field and the nations who don't know and those who have never heard the gospel, all of that's going to be driven by a theology that is perfecting itself in me because theology is not just head study it's the engine that drives belief and so this awesome family these two sisters are faced with these very difficult questions and they they've got this confidence in jesus and they feel like they've got a solid faith and we're going to see that they do because if we do sink to the level of our theological perfection then they're going to end up on pretty solid ground as we see in the last couple verses of the text but i want to walk through the text and look at about six observations this morning about six observations in the text and so begin in the first five verses the family was apparently pretty close to jesus he must have often visited them and even stayed with them as we see him there on several occasions in their fear and panic they send for jesus knowing that he can heal their brother they've seen him do many wonderful things they know he can heal their brother we see that jesus loved them verses three and five tell us that love the personal nature of the interaction with jesus and this family so the first observation is this Jesus is both mighty God and personal Savior. He's both mighty God and personal Savior. There's a personal relationship that Jesus has with these people that unfolds in the first five verses. They love Him. He loves them. There's a strong, and a lot of people tend to really cling to the personal nature of relationship with Jesus. And that's good. And we should hold fast to that. Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves you. You love Jesus. We all love Jesus. Jesus, it's all about Jesus. I love Jesus. I do. And that's awesome. And if, but if we're not careful and we only focus on the nature of Jesus' personal love towards us, if we're not careful, then we forget that He's the mighty God who will one day stand in judgment for every word, thought, act, and deed that goes on in my life. 
And if we swing too far the other way, and we say, well, Jesus is mighty God, He's Lord, He's God, He's Master. I sort of grew up in that culture where it, it tends to stimulate legalism. It's like, follow the rules, don't make God mad, make sure you're keeping Him happy, because He's the boss, and He's in charge. Well, He is the boss, and He is in charge, but let's not forget that, oh, how He loves us. And in this first little passage, you've got these two huge biblical themes coming together that Jesus loves us, and he's God in the flesh, and is the power and the, has the power and the authority not only to love us but to save us. And so you've got this sort of picture of what Christ came to do, even as the conversation starts to unfold. He loves them. Why did he go to the cross? Because he loves us. Well, to glorify God the Father, yes, and because he loves us. He loves us. On your worst day, Jesus loves you. On your worst day, you are loved by the Creator. That means your worst day is a good day. The day you stand over the the coffin of a loved one, the hope that you have is that yes, God is sovereign and and has authority over all things and is glorifying Himself, but you know what? He loves me. He loves me. I think one of the most powerful pictures of mercy and kindness that I've ever seen is a picture that that I have saved of... um, it's a war fighter. He's somewhere in Afghanistan or Iraq. And he's bent down and he's holding a small child. And he's giving that child part of his rations. And I thought, this is a picture of authority and power and strength extending mercy from that position. So, so Jesus has the authority to love us in spite of our sin because He has the authority to deal with our initial unbelief and the, and the depravity of our own nature. So He loves us because He has the authority to bring us out of that. He wouldn't love us if He left us in that because it says in Scripture very clearly that in that slavery to sin, dead in that sin, we're enemies of God, hostile towards God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, God has done what we could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He literally killed sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. God has done what we could not do. That's love. That's compassion. That's authority. Observation number two, God alone knows the future. He knows the beginning from the end and He's never caught off guard. That's good news. Like when your teenager goes cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and spins out of control and you're going, uh, God, I think you assigned me the wrong kid. <laughs> like, nope. He's got, he, like, he knows what's up. I said last week, uh, we had a, a Pretty much every weekend we have we have some, you know a, a conference going on at our at our place at Snowbird, and so we've got this church, big church, huge church, from down in Warner Robins, and uh, and I sat and talked and, and good partnership with that church. They have about two hundred fifty students at Snowbird. They basically fill camp up. And we're sitting there. I'm sitting there talking to a mom and a dad who are saying, "Here's our sons, teenager, 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 and they're out of control. and We don't know what to do." And, and pretty quickly in the conversation, you know what they did? They started to question God's authority and sovereignty. Like, did God, what, did, did we, we, we raised him, we did, we, and, and so if it's not my fault, then whose fault it was God's fault? No, it was cool because they, they, I think, in the conversation realize what's happening. They start backing up and saying, okay, what do we got to do? And sometimes all you can do is lay your requests and your burdens at the feet of a sovereign God who's got the authority to do something about it when you don't. 
Observation number two is that God knows the future. He knows the beginning from the end. He's never caught off guard. He's in complete control. His his sovereignty is measured in full along with His mercy and goodness so that in the darkest and most difficult time, we can trust Him. The problem is you don't know that level of trust until you get in that dark and difficult time. Until your spouse leaves you and says, I don't love you anymore, I've got somebody else. Until you stand over the casket of your own child. Until you lose your job. Until you get a, a... uh, an unfavorable um, diagnosis from a doctor till a brother or sister who you thought you were knit together by the Spirit of God and by a common focus and mission turns their back on you and hurts you. You get in those situations, it's good to know that God already knows. And that He knows the beginning from the end and He's not caught off guard. He's not sort of standing back on His heels going, ah, I did not plan for this. No, he's sovereign. We say he's sovereign. Do we really, really drill into that and believe it? Observation number three. Jesus is going to use the death of Lazarus to trigger the final cascading effect of his own arrest, trial, and murder. The ultimate way Jesus is going to fulfill verse four is by verse four, by the way, which says, this is kind of the early crux verse of the, of the text. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The ultimate way in which Jesus is glorified is through the cross. We know that this story is ultimately pointing to an even bigger resurrection. Because see, Lazarus is raised to life, and at this point, it's the greatest resurrection the world has ever seen. We'll get into that in a minute. But it will be usurped by Christ's own resurrection, whereby Paul will write to the Colossians and say he is the firstborn from the dead. That means he has authority over death. When Paul says, writing to the Colossians, says Jesus has, is the firstborn from the dead, that word firstborn means that he's in charge of. He has authority over. See, Lazarus didn't have any authority over death. He's laying there. He's a de- I mean, Lazarus is the ultimate picture of our spiritual condition, isn't he? Dead in trespasses and sin. This is Ephesians 2, like personified for us. He's decaying in his death. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Like That's the beauty of resurrection spiritually. And so, in this situation, what's happening is we're looking forward to a greater death, a greater burial, and a greater resurrection. Namely, that of Christ. So pick up the story in verse 6. And here's what we learn. The gospel is a story of God doing all things well, but not doing all things easily. The gospel is a story of God doing all things well, but not doing all things easily. Jesus hears of Lazarus' illness, expresses his love for him and his sisters, and then waited two more days. Jesus will show his love for them in the most powerful way, but will do so through a difficult experience for them. Which brings us to observation number four, which is this. Waiting on the Lord can be one of the most difficult things for us to do and endure as believers. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you're in a holding pattern and you're waiting? I'll never forget, man. We were, my two youngest kids are adopted from, we do a lot of work in northern Uganda, South Sudan, and Chad. So our main partnerships, Red Oak, Snowbird, our main partnerships are in West Africa and a country called Mauritania, um, in East Africa, South Sudan, and Chad, and in northern India, where we're partnered with you guys specifically. And so my two youngest children come from northern Uganda. The problem is there's no, they don't allow adoptions out of, from Uganda into America. Like, not right now. There have been times in the past where they have, but you can't do it. 
And so, but my wife, she's not good at taking no for an answer, even if it's from government officials. And so we flew to Uganda to get these kids. No plan. Hire a Ugandan attorney. Y'all, it's like the wild, wild west. At one point, at one point, I'm trying to figure out how to get some government officials in this bush region where they live to cooperate and sign some paperwork. And all I need is for somebody to drive four hours to the capital city, but they won't do it. And they want $50 to do it. But if I give them $50, then that's bribery. So I resorted to the only thing Southern Appalachian men know. That's threats. And it worked. I won't tell you the details. But I remember we're over there. We're stuck. We can't leave the country. Our visa's running out. We've got months. Months are building and stacking up. And we can't leave the country. And, but the, the problem was the judge in Uganda had already given full custody of these two little ones to us. Our Ugandan attorney, man, she was awesome. And she got, she got us a court appointment, and we went in there, and we got a hearing. We went for a judge. We got these kids. I got my son and my daughter. We brought them back. We're renting a little apartment over there. They're living with us, but the U.S. government says, those aren't your kids. You can't come home. You can come home, but, you, but they can't. Well, you, what would you do if your son and daughter were there? You wouldn't come home. I tell you, I remember two or three nights in a row thinking, we've got to leave this country. Like, our time's up. We have to leave. What are we going to do? And then God took me to this passage in John's gospel where he says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come for you. Jesus saying, it's difficult now and I'm going to go away. He's speaking to his disciples, but I'm going to come for you. I won't leave you as orphans. Like a lot of times the waiting game in the Christian life drives us nuts. And part of that is because we're in a culture that doesn't want to wait. We're in a culture where now, listen, when I was growing up, I... Friday night's Dukes of Hazard, Tuesday night's A-Team. I waited and anticipating all week for 8 o'clock Tuesday nights I was going to watch the A-Team. And then you finally get to watch it. And if it said to be continued at the end, it was awful. And now you just queue it up on Netflix and you watch your favorite show, all 13, 15, 20 episodes, whatever. People binge watch it. We've come up with like names to describe this. Why? Is it because it's because we're impatient, selfish, demanding people. And this the whole society's like that. Yeah. You ever get behind somebody in a, in a, like at McDonald's or in a drive-thru and they're just railing on this poor 17-year-old kid that had nothing to do with how their chicken McNuggets got made. And the fact that it took five minutes instead of three. And the fact that what, whatever, whatever. Just so, like this, I can't handle that. In fact, I can't handle it to the point that it pushes my buttons and I'm standing at McDonald's and the guy's talking to the 15-year-old little girl and I say, hey, knucklehead, you got a daughter? No, I should have known better. You got a son? Yeah, okay. Have you ever made a mistake? Yeah, guess what? She's 15. It's her. F- hey, baby, is this your first job? Yes, sir. How long have you been working here? Two months. Give her a daggum break, you moron. She's a kid, and you look like you could lay off the chicken nuggets for about a week. What is your deal? We don't want to wait for anything. And we drag that, but the problem is we drag that mentality into the church. I don't wait on God. I don't want to wait on Jesus. Some, there are people this morning, God's got you in a holding pattern. Might be in a relationship, might be at your job, might be with a financial investment. I don't know. But man, we get like, hey, go back to what we said earlier. God's sovereign. 
He knows the beginning from the end. He's working all things out in your life for His glory and your good. And His glory is always good. So just trust it. Put your nose down. Work really hard. Because see, salvation costs me nothing, but discipleship costs me everything. And the idea that I'm going to get free salvation and then the rest of my life is just like gravy train, free, like give me, give me, give me when I want it. Discipleship is putting your hand to the plow. It's, it's living out the Christian life by the blood and sweat of your own body. And sometimes you do that in a season of waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's like, God, what are you doing? God's got it under control. I remember sitting night after night going, God, are we going to live the rest of our lives in this country? If so, I'm fine with it. I need to get a job. It's God's timing. We often want God to respond to us in a certain way, and we want Him to respond in our timing, but God's not bound by our demands or even our desires. Though He is in tune to them and sensitive to them. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no, and sometimes He says not yet. But one of the hardest things is when God says yes, but it's going to feel like no for a little while longer. Ephesians 3.20 says he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I need to trust and wait if waiting's part of the plan. The more I walk with the Lord, and the deeper that walk is, the more I'm able to accept whatever he has for me. Trusting him with it. Trusting that God is bringing glory to himself in my life. Is trusting that he's bringing good in my life. But that is not always an easy thing to trust or to go through. Is it church? Get to verse 17. By the time Jesus gets to Lazarus, he's been dead for four days. But Jesus doesn't just show up to show off. He shows up and enters into the suffering of this family. He weeps with them. He feels the weight of their own pain and suffering. This is a powerful moment where we see the humanity of Jesus. He's already raised a couple of people in his earthly ministry. But in those instances, the dead person had only just died. Consider the widow's son in Luke 7. I went through this story with my 8-year-old daughter. So I've got teenagers and in this age gap. And i got these two little ones. And and and. And English is not the first language, and so we're, it's, it's really interesting talking theology. And so I'm talking to Juju, my eight-year-old, yesterday was yesterday morning. It was, man, I don't know how it was here. It was like 45 degrees at my house. I built a fire and drinking coffee and sitting out there on the porch having my quiet time. She came out and curled up on a blanket and said, what you doing? I said, we're talking about the widow's son. What's a widow? I don't know. Well, what is a widow, Daddy? We start talking. I'm back in the story, and I said, you know, what stands out to me in the story is that, and you remember the story, Jesus comes into the town of Nain. There's this processional of people, this funeral. They're walking out and they're carrying this dead boy on a, on a bier. And it's, he's, the, he's the last son of this widow lady. And she's grieving and everybody's grieving. Well, that would have been the first day of his death. Because in that culture, we know that the day you died is the day they got you into the ground. Because we didn't have embalming. We didn't have cooling processes so we got to do this quickly because we know from science that the decaying process starts really quick rigor mortis sets in within a few hours and within a couple of days rigor mortis has left the body and full-on decay has started so we got to get it we got to get it taken care of jesus walks up on this situation and he goes up and he touches the buyer the stretcher that they're carrying this boy on well you know in the jewish culture you didn't touch a dead body And Jesus in that act shows that the 
like that the dirtiness of death, the filth of death, the uncleanliness of death doesn't have authority over him, but rather he purifies that which is dead. It's a beautiful gospel picture. But people could easily have seen those types of situations, that one and the raising of Jairus' daughter, and say, yeah, but they were in like a coma. Or there was a swoon theory that a lot of times hovered around those stories. It even hovered around the death of Jesus. That this person wasn't really dead. This person was just... Listen, Jesus left no question to the physical condition of Lazarus. He gets the news, which would have taken... It's it's, it's just several miles. Easy journey. He gets the news. Well, we know that even if Jesus had gone then, Lazarus was already dead. Because he's dead four days, right? So he gets the news, waits two days, then goes. That's four days. He's been dead four days, which means he died. So they send word for Jesus. Lazarus dies before word even gets to Jesus. Well, Jesus knows this because he knows everything. So he waits four days. Why not three? Why not two? We know why. You've read this probably, most of you. For those of you Hatton, in most Semitic cultures in, in, in history, in that part of history, most Jewish thought held that for the first three days after death, the spirit would try to re-enter the body. Some even believed that it would re-enter and, and stay a while and then come back out and, and, and at some point realize this body is no longer inhabitable and the spirit would go on. But by day four, it was believed that that body was dead. So Jesus waits. In fact, later in the story in the King James Version, when Jesus is about to have the stone rolled back, one of the girls says, but at this point he stinketh. <laughs> that can only mean one thing. He's been dead four days. With Lazarus in John 11, he waited to make it clear so that those gathered would know that he had the power over life and death. And doing this, he's ratcheting up the words he had spoken in John 5 and 6. Listen to what he said in John. This is not the first time Jesus talks like this. John chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus had already called his shot. He's already like, I give life to whoever I want to. Now, was he talking about spiritual life? Mm-hmm. Was he talking about physical life? Mm-hmm. Well, which was it? Mm-hmm. He's the author of life, right? He's the author of life. He's the author of your faith. So he's talking about the, the authority and the power that he has over life. Let's get to observation number five, which is Martha's response in verses 20 to 22. Read that again. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. By the way, this what she's doing, I think. I think it's hard. This is like texting. Men, you ever text your wife? Is everything cool? And she says, it's fine. What does that mean? Does that mean, oh yeah, it's fine. Or does that mean, it's fine. <laughs> I need like I need eyes. I need body language. I don't need text, right? 
So we read, a lot of times you're reading the text, and even when you, we start parsing verbs, you start looking, it's just hard to know. But I, I just think that what's happening here is Martha's hovering, where, this is where we hover, between what she knows theologically to be true and what she believes at the core of her soul to be reality. Because there's always a lot of head knowledge, but a lot of times there's a lack of faith. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to really speak into what she believes more than what she thinks. What she believes, where her faith rests, more than what she academically accepts. We're all really good at this. We like to tell Jesus how to do things. You see what she's doing? We get desperate, we freak out, we get aggressive, we get edgy. Martha just needed to be reminded that Jesus was in complete control. And that's usually all that we need to be reminded. We have the benefit of hindsight. Martha did not. Here's what she's doing. She's going, Jesus, let me remind you. You ever talk to God like that? I do. Pray to God. God, listen, I know what, you, like, I know what you're going to do, but like, here, like, just hear me out. Well, just, that's, that, see, that's a belief issue. And we all struggle with it. I know. Like in this moment, well, we're going to see in a minute. If you ask Martha, what do you believe? You believe Jesus is God? Yep. Then why are you freaking out? Yeah, I don't know. I can't. Don't tell me not to freak out. I can't freak out. I freak out because I just, it, it seems to help. Does it really? Oh, man. I can feel, I can so relate to her right here. I so relate to this. She just seems to be saying what she knows is theologically sound, but not really submitting to the will and authority and work of Jesus. So watch how Jesus responds. It's our key verse for the morning. This is the I am statement of the passage. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus already made statements about this. But it had to have had a different weight for her in that moment. Because he's not saying I'm going to bring about resurrection, is he? This was actually this. This is real common in our in our society. We got a bunch of college football. I know you wouldn't come to this church if you didn't like football. <laughs> Somebody will say, "Man, that dude, he's a picture of," and they'll describe something, you know, or she's a picture of beauty, or look up that look up the word such and such in the dictionary and you'll see his face right there we do this we personify ideas and words well this goes all the way back again to greek philosophy the personification of an idea this was greek and you remember in john chapter 1 verse 1 jesus uh jesus is called the word john john recording in the beginning was the word the logos this was a greek idea that the word was the reality that everybody lived in so to personify an idea For Jesus to say, I am the resurrection, he's saying, I don't just make resurrection happen. I've entered into life, and I am the resurrection. Resurrection only occurs by me, and what he's no doubt pointing to is not his. He has the power right now to raise people from the dead. He's already done it. What he's talking about is much deeper. It's the idea that this life is temporary, but in Christ, this life will only lead to eternity. So as he would be raised in death, so we would be raised with him. Paul talks about this in Romans 6, where we're buried with Christ in the likeness of his death. We're raised to walk in newness of life. So that, for the believer, the greatest knowledge you will ever experience will come to you about one second after you breathe your last. When the ultimate eternal reality will become where you live. Jesus is saying, I'm the resurrection. 
And when I put the seed of faith in you, and I bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life, you never die after that. Because he'll say, though you die, yet will you live. And he's pointing to that which is eternal. It's a personification. Paul's words in Philippians 2.6 make clear what Jesus thought about his own identity. He considered himself equal with God and had that very form. And Jesus has proven it in the raising of Lazarus. His words in verse 25 are very specific. There's no ambiguity. Jesus is the resurrection of the lo- and life. He has power over death. His power over sin. His power over hell. His power over temptation. Even in his submission to humanity as the second Adam. As we heard read this morning. Before we took the Lord's Supper. We know that Christ is a better Adam. Observation number six. This is the, this is the conclusion. Martha's confession Faith over feeling. She gets there. She gets there in verses 26 and 27. Let's read. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Martha's belief in Jesus, in the end, what Martha believes overrides what she feels. Here's what you can trust, Christian. If he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it, if Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith, if he's the finisher of my faith, if ultimately what he's going to do in Romans 8 is those he predestined, he calls, those he calls, he justifies, those he justifies, he glorifies, ultimately we will be glorified, then here's what we can know. That in our moment of doubt, in our moment of questioning, the truth will stand in our hearts. And God will carry us through that. And in the end, our confession will be like Martha's confession. It'll be the confession of a believer who looks on the resurrected Lord and says, I believe because when dead people come to life, everything changes. It's so important for us because we are both cerebral and visceral. We are mind and matter. We are intellect and emotion. We have the tendency to compartmentalize our feeling and our believing. We love to have good, solid theological answers, but we let our emotions override what we confess and say that we believe. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce says about this. Notice also that Christ was specific. He did not say, Martha, do you believe generally? He said, Martha, do you believe this? That is, do you believe the specific truths I have just taught you? I ask that question of you. I trust that you that your answer may be different. Do you believe this? You should be able to say, yes, Lord, I believe it. I believe all that is written in your book. I believe in one great God who has made His earth and has placed me on it. I believe that I'm sinful. I believe that this same God in love and wisdom sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for me that I might be saved. I believe that Jesus existed with God and as God from the beginning. That He became man. That His death was a substitutionary death for me by which sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. And on the basis of which it will be remembered against me no more. I believe in Christ's historical, literal Bodily resurrection by which God has demonstrated that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is acceptable to Him as an all-sufficient atonement for the sin of His people and in which He has also given a foretaste of the coming resurrection of all who believe in Him. I believe in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that He opens blind eyes to see Christ and moves rebellious wills to embrace Him in their salvation. 
I believe that He illuminates the written Word of God so that those who are saved can understand it and obey it. I believe in the fellowship of the saints. I believe in the church. I believe in God's providence by which nothing enters the life of the Christian that is not the product either of God's direct or permissive will. I believe that God chastises His children. I believe that He is determined to perfect the character of Jesus Christ in all who are united to Christ by faith. I believe that Jesus will one day return from heaven even as He was seen going into heaven bodily and in time. I believe that in that day there will be a final resurrection of believers to the life of heaven and of unbelievers to judgment. In hell there will be suffering. In heaven there will be a life of blessing prepared in advance by God for those whom He has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. There's much more that can be said, of course, but every Christian should be able to say at least that. Do you believe this? You should be able to echo the teaching of the written word and answer the question of the living word, rounding it off with a hearty, yes, Lord, I believe all that is written in your book. Martha believes and she believes. She submits ultimately to the authority of the resurrection and life that is Christ Jesus. John heard these things. He saw Christ hanged on a cross and he witnessed the resurrection. And in John chapter 1, and we'll let this be the final word, he sees Christ decades later. He heard him say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He saw him die. Saw him resurrected. But only got to spend a few days with him. Decades later, he records what he saw. When I saw him, this is on the Isle of Patmos, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and hell. Let's believe. Let's believe. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its fullness, its accuracy and precision, for the authority of life that is in it. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your own resurrection. I thank you that long before you went to Calvary's cross and died in our place, taking our sin unto yourself, that you had a plan and a purpose for each one of us. I thank you that as dead as we were in trespass and sin, as, as, as locked up as we were in unbelief and hostility, I thank you that as you have the keys to death and hell, you had the keys to the hardest of hearts. And for those of us who believe you've unlocked those hard hearts you've brought conviction and breathed life and just as that four day old corpse laying in that tomb heard the voice of the one who created the heavens and the earth speak and call him forth and as that heart began to beat and as that blood began to pump and as those lungs began to operate and as brain waves began to function and life was brought where death had led to decay God we see in that only a fraction of the miracle of salvation that has occurred in the heart of every believer in this building. And our salvation rests on the fact that you're the resurrection and the life. So I pray this morning for those who have 
questioned you this week, who struggle with doubt, who question your management of our lives or your timing or those who are losing hope because they've faced their own struggle, their own death, their own situation. God, I pray that the words that you spoke to Martha would infuse our faith with power and that we would come to full belief as she did. What a beautiful confession before she ever saw your hand raise her brother from death. I pray that in our darkest hour, in our weakest moment, we would believe what we say we believe in the light of day. I love you and I thank you for this story. And I pray that you would move in our hearts in this time of response in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.